Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 1? And I want to begin by looking at verses 26 through 28. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Would you stand with me as we read this passage together? Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Let's pray. Father, I ask as we open your word as that it would also bring an opening in our hearts and our minds to your message, to your truth. That, Lord, that you'd provide us with foundations that your spirit can build upon and that can help us to experience what we talked about last week, about having joyous marriage life, Lord. That today, increasingly, it's marriage is viewed as one of the extended battlegrounds in our relationships. But God, your intention was that it be a place of joy, a blessing, and celebration. So Lord, help us to discover how to move in that direction, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The story, as I was told it, took place in the middle of winter in the upper regions of the state of Minnesota. Two gentlemen who had been lifelong ice fishermen had decided that they were going to set out early one morning to do what they had done every weekend since the lakes around them had frozen over. They would go out uh, on the middle of the lake, they would auger a hole, they would drop their lines, they would sit there and drink their beer, and even if occasionally catch a fish. And this was their, their way of living their life. Well, on this particular day, one of the gentlemen had just purchased a brand new Ford F-150. It was beautiful, pearl black paint job, um, had this, all the special wheels and all that stuff. And and, and so he loaded it up with everything he would need for the fishing day, including his dog and his best friend, and they set out for an undisclosed lake someplace in Minnesota. They drove right out on the lake, since it was frozen quite solid, and uh, began to set up camp. Digging away, augering at the hole is always a, a, an arduous process. You're continually having to clear the ice away. And the gentleman who owned the pickup told his friend on the way out there that today we're going to do it a little bit differently. His friend said, what do you mean? Well, he reached under his seat and he pulled out a stick of dynamite. And he said, instead of going through all the trouble, I'm just going to toss this out in the lake. We're going to blow a hole in the lake and then we'll fish off the edge. Well, his friend, being a guy, thought this was a spectacular idea. And so when they arrived, they pulled the dynamite out. His friend lit the fuse, tossed it out on the ice, and it went a good distance because things do carry on the ice. And then they waited. But as soon as he flung that dynamite out on the lake, 
his dog leaped out of the back of the truck. It was a retriever, and he was going to retrieve the stick that his master had just tossed out in the lake. Well, they began to scream at the dog with everything they could, trying to get the dog back. The dog is interpreting as being encouragement to continue on, not discouragement to come back. And before long, the dog skids up to the side of to the, the dynamite, picks it up in his mouth, and begins to run back to the truck. This man realized suddenly it's either me or the dog, and so he got his rifle out and he began shooting at the dog. Uh, the dog is slipping and sliding, he keeps on missing, and as these bullets are flying by him, the dog becomes even more panicked and tries even harder. In fact, he's so terrified that when he finally gets back, he slides underneath the truck and hides there. <laughs> At that moment, both men began to run in the opposite directions as fast as they could, and after a few seconds, there was this muscled, muffled, <laughs> and slowly the pickup sank into the lake. Now, beyond being just a study in male stupidity, <laughs> I want to ask you a, a rhetorical question, a theoretical question, I guess. And, and it's simply this. And I, I would like to begin with the ladies. This is just for the women to answer. Ladies, tell me, what is the tragedy of this story? <laughs> Gentlemen, what is the tragedy of this story? <laughs> now, I know there's a couple of you who see it differently, but just a couple. It's, it's an interesting thing, and I, I use this story to begin this illustration because what we do find in life is that in more ways than we can begin to count, men and women see the realities around them with a different realism. And it's not because one is smart and one is stupid, one is good or one is bad. It's because of what the Scripture says, that when God made us, He did this interesting thing. He, he made us male and female. God could have created us like flatworms, and every so often we just subdivide, and there's two of you. But He created this dynamic so that we are very different in some ways. In fact, we are so different, if it were not for our capacity to procreate, some could make the argument we're two completely different species. And it's that failure to understand that difference that often leads to, well, what we talked about last week, contempt. I mean, I've had my wife ask me this question. I'm sure it was just a rhetorical question. She couldn't have actually meant it seriously, but she's asked me these questions after I've done something and said, are you really that stupid? <laughs> and I'm sitting here thinking, well, until you said that, I actually thought I was being kind of brilliant. But, and you realize that you are on such different poles sometimes about stuff that you wonder how is this ever going to end up in something compatible? Now, recent history hasn't helped us much in all of this. I mean, uh, beginning particularly in the 1970s with what was called the sexual revolution, there began to be a presentation of a view. Well, I think that George Gilder in his book, Men and Marriage, put it really well. He said, the ultimate vision of the sexual revolutionist is that the sexes are essentially identical, inessentially and arbitrarily divided 
And then he goes on to add that to most people over the centuries, this view would have seemed preposterous, that is, at odds with reality and therefore untrue. In other words, when I look at my parents' generation and their generations before them, in fact, as far as we can look back in recorded history, one thing is very clear, that there seemed to be a clear sense that men are men and women are women, and that difference was respected, but yet in the following the sexual revolution, there became this idea that actually, other than some very obvious anatomical differences, men and women are basically the same. And so when I hear many times people say, well, husbands and wives should be best friends, I think that you begin to set up a dynamic that leads to a higher level of frustration because there are things that just are very different in how we look at life and we enjoy life. You know, I, I was thinking, for example, that if uh, you, you show up at a social gathering, a party, a wedding, or some event like that, and if you walk in this room and, you've, and suddenly a woman realizes that the host is wearing the identical dress that she is wearing, this is a tragedy. This is a tragic moment. If two guys walk into a setting and they're both wearing the same shirt, they're best friends for life. <laughs> it's just, and it's, it's a multitude of those kind of things, you know, that when my wife says, well, I want to stop off at the grocery store and pick a few things up, I know what really is going to happen. <laughs> we're going to start at one end and we're going to do every aisle just in case there's something else. And at, at the end of the day, we're driving out with a cart full of stuff. You know, because the difference is women, when they go shopping, they graze. Men go shopping, we hunt. I know what I want to get, and I'm going right to that place where it is, and I'm going to get it as quickly as I can, and I'm out of here. And I just get so frustrated when these box stores start moving stuff from new locations because I have to go and hunt that much harder. But it's all about that, even in terms of the relationship of finding a wife. A woman is waiting for that Prince Charming to come and fulfill everything on her tick list. A guy isn't waiting. He's hunting for that spouse. He wants to find her. He wants to bag her, tag her, and hang her over the, 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 the fireplace that she now becomes his trophy and a point of accomplishment. And many times the farthest thing from his mind is the idea that we are going to develop a deeper and deeper relationship over time. He, he wants to hug, go from there and fall asleep. And this, this, there's so many of these things we find that create huge tensions in the relationship. The kind of tensions because of these unrealistic and untrue expectations and this lack of valuing the other side of the personality in that marriage that causes us again to have certain contemptuousness and disrespect. That's why when Gilder went on to talk about this, he said that scientists have finally affirmed what non-experts have always known that there are profound and persistent biological differences between the sexes. From conception to maturity, men and women are subject to different hormonal influences that shape their bodies, their brains, their temperaments in different ways, even in the very organization of the brains. Well, 
As I said, the idea that men and women are essentially and non-essentially, inessentially different, are the similar, uh, not only has been preposterous, but what's amazing is the fantasy not only continues to prevail, but especially within the popular media, there has been almost like a, a bloom of a fungus that says that is even more increasingly preposterous. Eric Metaxas described it this way. He says, in just a few short years, our society has fundamentally altered the meaning of marriage. Embrace the notion that men can become women, that grown men should be welcome to share a bathroom with women and young girls, and the normalization of polygamy, pedophilia, and incest. And the talking heads and the propagandists of our day claim that the science on these issues is settled, so much so that we can, send, we can gender self-identify and that self-identification somehow changes the realities. That somehow, mysteriously, the X's and the Y's in our chromosome no longer are factors because we've been able to change things externally. Which is really interesting because a recent study, a recent definitive study by two of the leading and most respectable biostatisticians uh, and epidemiologists in the United States today, two men by Lawrence Mayer and Paul McHugh, spent years gathering together all of the scientific data and research. And you've seen it in the papers, you've heard about it, that they, you know, the, things like we found the gay gene and we found this thing and that thing. And they, they took all of that data and all of that research and they really went through it in detail and they published just recently what they entitled Sexuality and Gender, Findings from the Biological, Psychological, and Social Sciences. And guess what these two highly esteemed, non-agenda-driven scientists who are basically, uh, um, Mayer is, on the is a chair at, at uh, John Hopkins Medical Research University. And they wrote the following. They said, the hypothesis. Now, you know the difference between a hypothesis and a theory, don't you? A theory means you, you start with a hypothesis, which is an idea. I think, and therefore you go out and study it, and if you get enough evidence to support the hypothesis, then you have a theory. And a theory basically says this is a possibility, so that when you watch the progression of things, you, you have to realize that you start with an idea, then you try to find the evidence to support the idea enough to make it into a theory. And if you have enough evidence over an extended period of time, the theory then becomes a fact. So I have hypotheses all the time. <laughs> some of them are good, some of them are bad. But really, a hypothesis is saying, I think. And what he is saying by using that particular word is that all of the information we gathered were at best hypothetical, not scientific. The science is not settled. In fact, he said it's very unsettling. He says the hypothesis that a person might be a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body, number one, is not supported by scientific evidence. Studies have demonstrated weak correlations between brain structure and cross-gender identification. And thirdly, there is no neurobiological basis for cross-gender identification. In other words, 
When God said, I made them male and female, he said the final word on the facts. You are either a man or you are either a woman. Now, it doesn't matter who you are or how you self-identify yourself. If we do a DNA, a micro-DNA a a scratch of you, we're going to find out that you have either XX or XY chromosomes. Nothing changes that, never changes that. So that when we look at the way the culture is going, we have to understand that it's not based upon facts. The science isn't settled. In fact, the science is just the opposite. It says it's just not true. But why do I go there? Because I think we have to understand, first of all, or silence the confusion many times that's out there, and then begin to focus on this most central truth about relationships between husbands and wives. Men are men, and women are women. And I would not say that the two shall never meet, because they do, but there are such profound differences that what's needed is a respect and a valuing of those differences, not a criticism or a mocking or, or devaluing of those differences. So essentially, I say there's three things we need to remember. Number one, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 44, 21, remember, he said, I have made you. You did not self-create yourself. Uh, you did not one day just determine that you were going to be you. Now, there are evolutionists who have theories. One of them, I think, is my favorite. It's called the helpful, hopeful monster theory. And they're trying to understand how did, you know, reptilian creatures uh, evolve into feathered birds? How, you know, how did, you, uh, how did a, a lizard lay an egg and one day it hatched and out came a chicken? And he came up with, a Gould at Princeton came up with what he called the hopeful monster. It just basically became very hopeful <laughs> and one day just popped out. It self-designed itself. Now, I've been trying to self-design myself for years, and I'm not moving forward. I'm moving backwards. I willed myself to be 20 years younger, 20 IQ points smarter and doggone it, good-looking, and people like me. That's, I'm willing that. I look in the mirror and say, I am, I can, I will. How am I doing? <laughs> you didn't need to laugh. <laughs> you could have been polite about it. But we all understand that, that on the face of it, it's just a silliness. There's a silliness of it. But it's amazing that as uh, Goebbels, uh, you know, uh, Hitler's propagandist, Simply put it, he says, if you tell a lie over and over again, long enough, strong enough, and loud enough, people will believe it's true. Great illustration, a, a science teacher in a Christian school was talking about the issue of creationism and, and evolution, and he sought to illustrate it by an example. He said, if you're driving in your car and it broke down and you went and lifted up the hood and had no idea why it wasn't running, which is usually what happens when I lift the hood, he says, and then you went to the trunk and you pulled out the biggest wrench you could find and you walked back to your car, you stepped back and took a long stretch and threw that wrench at the engine as hard as you could, would that repair your engine? The answer, of course, the student said, no. He says, what if you threw that wrench a hundred times? Would it repair the engine? And the student said, well, no. 
Then he said, okay, then what if you threw the wrench at that engine four billion times? And every one of them said, well, in that case, yeah, it probably would work. <laughs> Why? What has changed? And that's the whole point. That's the whole point. Nothing has changed. Man did not create himself, and he demonstrates the fact by he cannot create himself. So that when we talk about this, we need to under God says, I made you, I made you male and female. And thirdly, I made you male and female so that you would be different in exactly the same way. That I would be different exactly in the same way. And I'll explain later on what I mean by that kind of contradictory way of saying it. But how are men and women different? Well, we know that we're anatomically different. Anybody can see that. Uh, but it's interesting. On average, and I know some people are going to say, well, this is not true in our case, but on average, men are five inches taller than women. They're 50%, 50 stronger upper body strength. Uh, they have a higher aerobic capacity. They can metabolize oxygen on a higher level than women can. They're, uh, they have 63% greater muscle mass they're more sensitive to light than women are. And they have better straight-on vision. I mean, men tend to be able to focus at a distance. But women, on the other hand, have a much lighter and more flexible skeletal system than men. I think that's part of having babies. There's something about being able to go through that change. That, that in itself just is really a, a staggering to me. They have, and I, I don't mean this critically, but they have twice as many fat cells in their body than men do. And the reason is because they have to be able to nurture babies inside of them. And contrary to, again, one of the misinformation campaigns of our time, that fat is a bad thing. Fat is very important to your health and to your welfare. And uh, there's many times I've invested heavily in it. Uh, especially if it comes in the form of bacon. But <laughs> women are more sensitive to smells. <laughs> Is that a surprise to anybody? <laughs> uh, my poor son, we were doing the worship schools weekend, and his mom sent him a text message. Come back to the green room and take a mint because your breath stinks. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think it stunk. I thought it was manly. But it's... But you, you know, if you're married, you, you've had this conversation. Go take that shirt off. You need to take a shower. Have, how many times, how, at least how many times you said that to you? You need to go take a shower. You need to change that shirt. Nobody wants to admit it. <laughs> I know it's true because I've heard it from others. It never happened to me personally, but I've heard it from others. They're more sensitive to sounds, and they're more, they have greater peripheral vision. And boy, this is so true. When we're driving, my wife is always saying, did you see that deer over there? I'm looking straight down the road. I see no deer. And she says, no, right over there. It's over there. And she sees all that stuff. And I, I think this, is, this makes me feel bad. But especially if you feel that things like that are competitive parts of your relationship and not cooperative parts. That there's physiological differences. You know, physiological means the, the way that you function within your environment. Uh, women, on general, tend to be better communicators. They're more verbal. 
uh, they're more descriptive. And it's, it's always a, a point of conflict between men and women when it comes to having conversations. You know, two guys meet, and what's the conversation like? We ask certain important questions like, what is your name? What do you do? Where'd you get that cool shirt? So I can buy one just like it. Right? This is the kind of stuff, it's, it's, it's pretty uh, superficial, pretty tangible. If you want to build relationship with guys, you have to begin by having conversations about uh, things that are matter-centered. They're, they're physical, they're real. They're, you know, we'll talk about that game, that team. That, you know, these are the kind of things we, we deal with. Two women meet each other, and the first conversation is, what is your name? And the second, point, second thing they ask is, are you married? And then is, do you have children? There's just a very different domestic orientation. And women can have, spend hours talking about stuff that to a man really makes no real sense at all. So that when we have a gathering of couples, it is normal, and not abnormal, but it's normal for there to be a sorting. And before long, you have the men in one room and the women in the other room. And it's not because we're segregating one from another, but we find that our topics of interest and the direction of our conversations oftentimes are very, very different. In fact, we find that women um, tend to make deeper emotional connections more quickly than do men. That when there's stress or conflict, women's response is kind of to tend and to befriend, to find a way of moderating and, and resolving this. Uh, whereas when you talk about men, we tend to be more logic-centered and we have a harder time getting in touch with our feelings. And I, this really came home to me when my, my mom was uh, uh, still alive and she was living in, in California. Uh, after my uh, stepfather passed away, she would call me every, night, every Friday night at the same time. And I didn't know how she knew that that was our movie night and that we would be watching movies. But she timed it perfectly every, every week so that we would have to pause and, and, and I'd have to have this conversation. And so the phone would ring, I'd pick it up and I'd start talking to my mom. And it was interesting because my wife is sitting there listening to this conversation and what she hears is, uh-huh, yeah, oh, hmm, didn't know that. Really? Okay, yeah, fine. I mean, you know, and we would have this conversation. It wouldn't last long, 30 minutes, an hour or something like this. And when we'd finally get done and I'd hang up, my wife would always ask me, so what did your mom say? <laughs> and I, quite honestly, I mean, I, my mind is just starting to panic because like, like I, I know the test is coming. You've got to find something. And I find some little innocuous thing and say, oh, she said thus and such. And goes, oh, what else? <laughs> and finally, they would hit a frustration point. He says, okay, if you don't want to tell me, don't tell me. You're going to keep secrets from me. I don't care. <laughs> so an hour later, I'd say, oh, by the way, my mom mentioned it. says, I thought you couldn't remember. <laughs> no, I, now I rem I'm starting to come back to me. And over the next two or three days, the whole conversation would, would be revealed. But it's not because I was trying to withhold information. We'll talk about again why we think this may be the case, but it was just hard for me to collate it all. Women, on the other hand, 
you say, what did you talk about? You better pull up a chair. <laughs> you are going to get a blow-by-blow -blow detailed explanation of everything that, that was said. You see, uh, and it's a tendency that men tend to react to situations logically. Uh, women more so emotionally. And I don't mean that women are illogical or men are non-emotional. We all are both of those things. But there's a primacy. There's a certain emphasis that, you know, you drive up on a car accident. And my first question is, who's responsible? My, my first question is, I wonder if anybody got injured. She's thinking about the welfare of people and how this is affecting their personal life. I just want to find who the criminal is. You know, and it's, 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 it's part of the reason that we find that men and women tend to gravitate to certain kind of professions, some more caring and, and nurturing and some more uh, policing and enforcing. It has a way, it, it really connects with how we are first responding to the impetus of information that's coming into us. That when men are stressed, rather than thinking about tending and befriending, they want to fight or they want to flee. And as I said, when it comes to the, the challenge of shopping, the challenge of shopping, it, I won't go there. Um, <laughs> but why is this? Well, there is a, some who believe that it's something within the very structure of how the brain is, is, comes together. There's a part of the brain called the corpus callosum. It's a, a thick band of nerve fibers. You can see in this slide here that, that line down the middle and the fibers that are coming out of it. <clears throat> what we do know is this is the communication network from the left and the right brain. If you talk about somebody being left-brained, it means they tend to be very logical. L for left, logic. That's somewhat, and this is a gross generalization when I say this, but there tends to be a lot of more uh, reasoning and logic side of the brain. The right-brained is, is more emotive. It tends to wear more creative things. And the idea is that you're, that you're using both sides of your brain to process information. And the, the challenge often becomes is that we believe that the corpus callosum is much more holistic, much more connected with both sides of the brain so that they see, a woman sees, she thinks about, and she feels about something almost immediately. I mean, this came out with the Israelis when they had women uh, back in the uh, first war that they had with the, with the Arabs, that they had uh, their women, because of a shortage of soldiers, were on the front lines with soldiers. They had no discrimination between those combat units. They were both male and female because they needed every hand on deck because they were so seriously outnumbered. Well, what they found is that, and, and they don't do that today, it's interesting that we're moving in this direction, but they found that that didn't work out well for either side uh, for a number of different reasons. The same reason that the Marine Command said that they objected to being forced into this pattern because of the studies that they had done. But one of the things that the Israelis discovered is that women don't have post-traumatic stress syndrome. In other words, this, this dynamic where a man goes off to war and he's experiencing all these terrible things and then he comes back and he seems normal and then six months to five years later he starts having nightmares and a lot of times they start self-medicating with drugs and alcohol to try to deal with it so that a lot of our homeless population are Vietnam War and other victims who simply 
have shut down emotionally because of the trauma that they saw. But when initially they were able to stay really focused, women don't go through that. They don't go through post-traumatic syndrome. They just go through traumatic syndrome. It's almost immediate. That they tend to see what's going on and to feel the impact in the same moment. And they become, you know, when they see somebody next to them having their face blown off, uh, they react. Now, not that all men, that men don't do that as well. But the difference is, is that men have a way of compartmentalizing information. And that has its importance in life. There are times when you need to compartmentalize. If I'm on an airplane and suddenly a fire breaks out in the plane or something isn't functioning properly, I'm hoping the pilot is compartmentalizing. I think he's, I'm hoping he's focusing on one thing and one thing alone, keeping this plane in the air and landing it safely. I do not want him to be thinking about how this is going to affect his 401k or what's going to happen with my kids or uh, I was just getting ready to retire. I don't want him having those conversations with himself. I want him to be able to push everything aside and focus on that. And generally, not 100%, because people kind of nail me on that. It's not 100%, but generally men find that easier to do. And for a woman, it has to become much more of a trained discipline. Whereas women think about the whole issue. They feel it and they see it and they think it all at once. There are values for that. In some arenas in life, we want people who can keep the emotions out of the moment. I just think, and I'm, I'm speaking a little bit out of school, but I was just what I was seeing in the news about one of the most recent shootings by police officers in Tulsa. And in a way, it wasn't surprising to me that in this moment, as this man is being tasered, and whether it was right or wrong, I have no idea, that his female co-officer suddenly panicked and fired her revolver into an unarmed man and killed him. And the little explanation we've got is she thought he, had, he was going for a gun. And you can get into all the different issues of racism and prejudice and all this stuff. And then there's validity to all that, by the way, folks. I don't think that we need to... to, to kind of go to these extremes that we go to many times. We need to listen to what people are saying and hearing their stories and understanding their stress. But that may be an example of what I'm talking about. That in the swirl of that moment, instead of being able to stay focused on what needed to happen, emotions took over and she made a tragic mistake. Um, so that when we talk about the difference the way that men and women process information, we need to, to begin to realize that a husband and a wife can be looking at the same situation. They can be addressing the same problem, and they're going to come to very different conclusions most of the time. And that's a valuable thing. Now, if you're insecure and you feel like you have to always be right and you're afraid of not being in control of every situation, you set yourself up for a conflict. You set yourself up to saying, how can any become so stupid not to see the obvious effects of what they're doing or not doing? And again, as I talked last week, there, there comes that disrespect. There comes that, that contempt. But when I begin to realize that I need to be listening to my wife's perspective because she's probably sensing and seeing and experiencing something vastly different than I am. Now, 
you know, in a way so that when a man sees something, we think that what happens is that logical side of his brain, that left side, begins to become very active and busy processing data and information. And over time, like my conversation with my mother, I will begin to connect that information to how I feel. Because one of the most intimidating things a woman can do to a man is to ask him, so how do you feel about that? Guys, am I wrong on this? Isn't that a scary thing? What, what are your feelings? How do you feel about that? And it's not like we're withholding information. We just don't know. I mean, really, I haven't taken the data and thought, how do I feel about that? And it may take me hours, days, weeks, sometimes years to get in touch with how I feel about something that happened in my life. And my wife can tell me right now, that made me feel really bad. And I go, okay, didn't see that coming. I can't tell you how many times I've said to my wife, didn't see that coming. And she looks at me and goes, are you using only half your brain? <laughs> and I have to admit, you may be close to the truth and you realize. There's a whole right side that's, that's on pause right now. Let me give you a story, <clears throat> actually written by one of my favorite columnists, Dave Barry. It's, a, it's called Roger and Elaine, A Love Story. And I think it illustrates what I'm trying to say better than what I'm saying. Let me read it to you. He says, let's say a guy named Roger is attracted to a woman named Elaine. And he asks her out to a movie and she accepts and they have a pretty good time. A few nights later, he asks her out to dinner and again, they enjoy themselves. They continue to see each other regularly and after a while, neither one of them is seeing anybody else. And then one evening, when they're driving home, a thought occurs to Elaine, and without really thinking, she says it out loud. Roger, do you realize that as of tonight, we've been seeing each other for exactly six months? And then there is a silence in the car. <laughs> to Elaine, it seems like a very loud silence, and she thinks to herself, geez, I wonder if it bothers him that I said that. Maybe he's been feeling confined by our relationship. Maybe he thinks I'm trying to push him into some kind of obligation that he doesn't want or isn't sure of. And Roger is thinking, gosh, six months? And Elaine is thinking, but hey, I'm not sure I want this kind of relationship, some kind of obligation that he doesn't want or isn't sure of either. Sometimes I wish I had a little more space so I'd have time to think about whether I really want us to keep going the way we are moving, moving steadily toward, I mean, where are we going? Are we just going to keep seeing each other at this level of intimacy? Are we heading towards marriage, towards children, towards a lifetime together? Am I ready for that level of commitment? Do I really even know this person? And Roger is thinking, so that means it was, let's see, February when we started going out, <laughs> which is right after I had the car at the dealer's, which means, let me check the odometer, whoa, I am way overdue for an oil change here. <laughs> and Elaine is thinking, he's upset. I can see it on his face. Maybe, maybe I'm reading this completely wrong. Maybe he wants more from our relationship, more intimacy, more commitment. Maybe he has sensed, even before I sensed it, 
that I was feeling some reservations. Yes, I bet that's it. That's why he's so reluctant to say anything about his own feelings. He's afraid of being rejected. And Roger is thinking, I'm going to have them look at that transmission again. I don't care what those morons say. It's still not shifting right, and they better not try to blame it on the cold weather this time. What cold weather? It's 87 degrees out, and this thing is shifting like a blankety-blank garbage truck, and I've paid those incompetent thieves $600. And Elaine is thinking, he's angry. And I don't blame him. I'd be angry, too. God, I feel so guilty putting him through this, but I can't help the way I feel. I'm just not sure. Roger is thinking, they'll probably say it's only a 90-day warranty. That's exactly what they're going to say, the scumballs. <laughs> and Elaine is thinking, maybe I'm just too idealistic, waiting for a knight to come riding him on his white horse, when I'm sitting right next to a perfectly good person, a person I enjoy being with, a person I truly do care about, a person who seems to truly care about me, a person who is in pain because of my self-centered schoolgirl romantic fantasy. And Roger is thinking, warranty. They want a warranty. I'll give them a warranty. I'll take this warranty and stick it right up there. Roger, Elaine says aloud. What? Roger says, startled. Please don't torture yourself like this, she says, her eyes beginning to brim with tears. Maybe I should never have. Oh, oh, I feel so. She breaks down sobbing. What? Roger says. I'm such a fool, Elaine sobs. I mean, I know there's no knight. I know that it's silly. There's, there's no knight. There's no horse. There's no horse? <laughs> you think I'm a fool, don't you, Elaine says. No, says Roger, glad to finally know the correct answer. <laughs> it's just that, it's that I... I need some time, Elaine says. There's a 15-second pause while Roger, thinking as fast as he can, tries to come up with a safe response. Finally, he comes up with one that he thinks might work. Yes, he says. Elaine, deeply moved, touches his hand. Oh, Roger, do you really feel that way? <laughs> what way? <laughs> That way about time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Elaine turns to face him and gazes deeply into his eyes, causing him to become very nervous about what she might say next, especially if it involves a horse. <laughs> At last she speaks, thank you, Rogers. Thank you, says Roger. Then he takes her home and she lies on her bed, a conflicted, tortured soul, and weeps until dawn. Whereas when Roger gets back to his place, he opens a bag of Doritos, turns on the TV, and immediately becomes deeply involved in the rerun of a tennis match between two Czechoslovakians he's never heard of. <laughs> a tiny voice in the far recesses of his mind tells him that something major was going on back there in the car, but he's pretty sure there's no way he would ever understand it. And so he figures it's better if he doesn't think about it, which is also his policy regarding world hunger. The next day, Elaine calls her closest friend, or perhaps two of them, and they will talk about this situation for six straight hours. 
In painstaking detail, they will analyze everything she said and everything he said, going over time and time again, exploring every word, expression, gesture for nuances of meaning, considering every possible ramification, and then they will continue to discuss the subject off and on for weeks, maybe months, never reaching any definite conclusion, but never getting bored of it either. <laughs> Meanwhile, Roger, while playing racquetball one day with a mutual friend of his and Elaine's, will pause just before serving, frown and say, Norm, did Elaine ever own a horse? In Genesis 2.18, God makes this statement. He says it's not good for man to be alone. In other words, that the, probably the most difficult way to live one's life is alone, or it, particularly if it creates the emotion or the feeling of loneliness, which it often does. And so he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a help me for him. One Hebrew translator has called it a counterpart. And what a counterpart is, is uh, if you illustrate by the slide here, it's basically when we talk about the cogs of a, of a, a wheel, that uh, they interlock. They have to be exactly opposite to fit together so that they can interlock. Because if you have them both, uh, both being identical at the same point of contact, uh, it would jam the gears and nothing moves forward. And I find that often in relationships, when we begin to operate with the concept that this person is just like me and sees things just like me, and if I were doing what they were doing and thinking the way they were thinking and acting the way they were acting and making the choice they're acting, I would be doing it out of anger, maliciousness, lovelessness, heartlessness, so forth and so on, when in fact, the opposite may be completely true. That God created my wife to be who she is because he knew what I needed in my life. In fact, my wife and I have had this conversation about being organized. Is organization a gift of God or is it a skill that you develop in life? And she's always said, well, I think organization is my gift because I just look at things and I start straightening them out beginning with what you're wearing this morning and right on down the list. You know, so there's just a, there's a, there's a way that she functions. I mean, she sees things in, in order and in structure. She, she can walk into chaos and just take it and begin to structure it. And she was saying that was a gift. And I said, no, it's not a gift, honey. What it is, it's a skill. You may have a proclivity for that giftedness, but the reality is I am a very organized person today because I've grown up under your tutelage. One of the things I discovered is that if part of the love language of my wife and I's relationship is for my desk and my study to be neat, orderly, and everything in place. Because she can walk in there and look at that desk with all its stuff piled there, and she begins to have an emotional breakdown. I mean, it's just like she has to straighten it. And if I don't want her putting things away where she thinks they belong, I better straighten them up. And so over time, I've learned that I've learned that you take something out of the drawer, you put it back. As I was visiting my, my son and his family in Nashville, and I'm out there doing all these things. I'm cutting their grass. I'm weeding their flower beds because I'm on vacation. And, uh, you know, I'm just cleaning, I'm cleaning out their garage. I'm doing all this stuff, you know, that they seem to never be able to quite get around to. And, and uh, 
my daughter and I come in the house and I got some on the floor. I got paper towels. I wet them. I took my shoes off. I was on the floor wiping the floor up, cleaning up all the mess that I'd left behind. I know, gals, you wish I would. There were two of me, right? <laughs> and she looked at me and said, I have not trained my husband well. <laughs> and I thought to myself, that's what happens. We need to be trained in these things. And we as men need not to resent that training. So as much as I may joke about the way I drive, the truth of the matter is my wife has never gotten a driving ticket and I, I keep them in business. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's that, that as much as she has to keep on saying to me, the speed limit is, and, and as much as I can go, I wish you'd quit trying to tell me how to drive. We need those voices in our life. We need to be able to hear it. We need to respect that perspective that the other person brings into our world. And God made us that way. He, he planned it that way so that where I am lacking, that she could fill up the gap. And that's why sometimes you get these conversations, well, you know, my wife is trying to take control of the family and she's trying to run the house. I've just found that when a man truly loves his wife as Christ loves the church and when a wife respects her husband as the church does Christ, uh, that conversation never takes place. It's never, it's never a conversation of who's in charge or who's on first base. There are just some things that my wife is just better at. She's just really better at it. And I think that it's that mutual respect that builds the kind of relationship that every one of us is looking for. But it begins with a simple, basic understanding. We are vastly different people. And what attracted me to my wife was the fact that she was different from me. You see, I already had a brother. I didn't want another one. But I did want a wife. I wanted somebody who was exactly like me in the opposite way, who could complement my life and fill in the things that are lacking. And that's why when Paul says, husbands, love your wife, he says, you know, what your wife needs is that kind of intimacy. Isn't it interesting? He doesn't say, he doesn't say to husbands, husband or wife, husbands, uh, respect your wife. Because respect is not her love language. Intimacy is her love language. I'm listening to you. I'm hearing what you're saying. I'm paying attention. I'm concerned. I'm involved. I'm, you know, I'm in your life. She needs that. She needs to feel like you want to be with her. You want to experience things with her. You want to do things together with her that you enjoy her on every level. Men, on the other hand, <laughs> ladies, your husband, part of it is he lives in a world that he gets beat up pretty regularly. And it's getting worse as we talk about men in our culture and we down on them and stuff. And even in the church, we tend to browbeat men saying, you've got to be the head of your house and you've got to take control. And you know, he doesn't even know how sometimes to be the head of his own head. And now he's supposed to be head of somebody else's. And it just, it, what he needs to know is, I respect you. I will honor you. Not always because of what you do, but because of the position that you hold in this family. God has ordained you to be the leader. And I'm going to help you to be the leader as best you can be. And when you begin to Submit yourself, as we talked about last week in, in Ephesians 5.21, submit yourselves out of reverence for Christ in that kind of way. It has a transformational impact upon a relationship. 
It's transformational. It's, a, it's astounding how quickly a marriage can turn around when a husband just simply says, you know, I'm going to make a point to love my wife. I'm going to make a point to do those things that show her that I care, that I, I'm going to respond to her. I, I discovered early on that my wife doesn't like me bringing her flowers. So that song, you don't bring me flowers anymore, she, you know, that was never her concern. She likes things more substantial, but and, and I have to get them on sale. If I don't get her something on sale, then she can't enjoy it, and she has to take it back and wait till it comes back on sale. I mean, these are the ways, you know, you grow up poor, you, you develop, you know, the, the coupon lifestyle, and we still live the coupon lifestyle. I think I got a coupon for that. <laughs> and I have to understand that this is what matters to him. So I come back and say, honey, look what I got for you, and I, I know you've wanted this, and the fact that I know that she wanted it makes her feel like he cares, he listened. You know, I mean, sometimes she drops hints like we're at Hiroshima, but, some, but they are, <laughs> but that doesn't necessarily mean that I hear them. She's dropping hints and I, I have this dim sense of something going on behind me, but I don't want to look because it would mean I have to come involved. So, but when you, you hear that and you're listening, that I found out there's a whole list of things that I was into I would drag my wife up on high mountains and race down from the top because I grew up doing that and I love the idea of knee-deep powder and all that kind of stuff. And my wife finally said to me, it's cold. <laughs> it's not fun. Oh, I didn't hear that for a long time. When you start hearing those things and you start responding. Her, that's, you're trying to say, what is her love language? I found just doing things around the house and fixing things that are broken and taking her to-do list and working through it instead of saying, yeah, old battle axe has that wish list again. I gotta go through that. Instead of saying that, saying, no, this is her love language. That when she comes home with the groceries, if I go out and I get those out of the trunk so she doesn't have to, and I bring them in for her. That's her love language. Now, that may not be your love language, ladies, but it's figuring out what is the love language of the one that you're married to. In the same way with ladies, you realize that what he wants from you more than anything else in the world is for you to look him squarely in the eye and say, I love you and I respect you. And I know some of you, I mean, really seriously, I know some of you going, I can't do that. Oh, yes, you can. Because you're crushing his spirit when all he hears from you is how he's fallen down. And please, please, for everyone's sake, ladies, Do not say to your husband, I wish I was married to somebody like Pastor Ken. <laughs> because if you do, my wife will invite you to come over and wash my underwear for a week. <laughs> if that doesn't dispel anything, if that... <laughs> I mean, Beach Nut is not the only one that's got them. That's all I'm saying. You don't know that commercial? 
Yikes, stripes, speechless, got him here. Anyway, <laughs> is that gross you out? <laughs> then, I, then I've accomplished my task. <laughs> Just think, you could have me in your life 24-7, sing zingers like that all the time. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Wednesday night, we're going to pick up this conversation. We'll approach it in a little different angle like we did last week. We had a great time last Sunday. Thank you, Dan and Jenny. You were marvelous. We're going to pick it up again next Wednesday night. If you can join with us, we'd love to have you there. I think we'll have fun. Father God, I pray that you would help all of us to begin to understand that how important this is for marriage. And it goes beyond that. It, it, it affects all of our relationships, Lord. We, we tend to live in judgment we tend to draw, jump to conclusions and make snap judgments about things that many times we don't know, we don't understand, because we just assume that what we see is the way it is, when in fact, we just need to listen and understand that other people um, slice the tomato differently than we do. But the obligation to walk in love and respect towards one another is always the same, always there. That you haven't called us to be in total agreement with other people because we, that's probably impossible. But you have called us to listen and to respect the other perspective. Help us with that, Lord. We're all bigots and hypocrites at our core. But you give us more grace, Lord. Help husbands to speak the language of love to their wives. Help wives to respect their husbands and to honor them, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue, we're going to just take a little time to reflect on what God has spoken into your life. I trust by faith that, that he has, not because I get it right or I'm so good. No, it's, it's really the Holy Spirit has a way of, of moving in our lives as we gather in his name. He made us that promise that he would do that. He would move in us and speak to us. And, and I just, we just want to always like to give you a little space to allow that to take place and to respond if that's the way that God wants you to. That if you feel like you need prayer, well, myself and others will be over here in the wings. Uh, be glad to, to spend a little time praying with you. We don't really have time to do in-depth counseling, you know, at this point. But there are people who are available to do that through the week. But I really, really want to encourage you to just really settle back. And, and particularly when we talk about the elements of communion, you know, Paul interestingly said, husband is to love his wife the way Christ loved the church. And the church and the wife is to respect and honor her husband the way the church does Christ. That the marriage is the only relationship in the Bible that's described as being a, a metaphor of the relationship of Christ with his church. So that when we partake of the elements of communion, what we are essentially saying in the context that we're in at this moment is that I understand that I have a, a Christ-given duty, an obligation, that what I see in that bread is he gave his life. He sacrificed himself completely. And when I take that cup, I'm, I'm, I'm re recognizing that as, as Christ has absorbed me, so my wife is called to absorb me into her life, that we can become one. 
The ancient Israelites, they understood the idea and the, the whole emblematic idea of eating together, the idea that your body absorbs the food. And when they put their hand in the bowl together, it meant that there was an intermingling of the same elements in both their life. And that was why it was called a feast of brotherhood. You didn't, you didn't usually eat with your enemies. But when, Paul, when David says in Psalms, he sets a table before for me before my enemies. He's talking about how God is this peace giver. He turns enemies into friends. And then we, when we partake of these elements, that in a sense is even an objective step into bringing healing into the relationship. It allows the Holy Spirit to begin to intermingle in both of our hearts and to treasure and to value the other one that he has given to us who is by design not compatible with you. But God calls us to something greater than compatibility. He calls us into communion. <laughs> I'm not compatible with God. He's holy and I'm a sinner. But he made me one with him. And so I'm not compatible, but I am in communion with Christ. So I pray that you'd allow the, even the elements that we share to be part of the passage that we go down in order to allow God to transform our lives, our marriages, our homes, and to make your relationship with your beloved joyous. Don't question that you love him. They, he, she is your beloved, but are you finding joy? Well, it starts with that mutual love and respect. 